Today we're continuing with the book of the Psalms, the songbook of God's people, the series that we've started last week. And we, uh, I just want to say again that I want you to love the Psalms. I want to say this probably every week, but I, I really long for our community to be a community that loves these 150 songs that God has preserved for us, that his people have sung for hundreds and thousands of years together um, to sing these ways of God, to sing what they believe and what they affirm. The psalm that we looked at last week was Psalm 1, and you might remember the the two images of the healthy tree planted by streams of water over and against the, the chaff that's blown by the wind that has no substance, a substantial life of fruitfulness and blessing over and against an insubstantial life um, of vanity and of, of fading glory. And that's the, the psalm that we talked about as the introduction into this entire repertoire of songs, the book of the Psalms. But Psalm 2 actually continues in this introductory note and in some ways picks up where Psalm 1 had left off by beginning to fill out a little bit of uh, who these wicked might be and then also what this instruction of God might be. You might remember from last week we talked about the fact that what defines this tree planted by uh, a stream of water, this healthy tree, is the fact that it's open. This person is open to the instruction of God at every point in their life. Over and against somebody whose ear has been stopped up, who's obstinate in their rejection of any outside authority and who says, I'm going to do things my own way. So openness to the instruction of God was the key last week. Well, this week in Psalm 2, again, by way of introduction into the entire book of the Psalms, we see that the fundamental core of the instruction that the Psalms want to communicate to us as the people of God. And at this core is the question of rule, of, of, of kingship, of sovereignty. The assertion that Psalm 2 makes uh, over and above everything else that it says is the assertion that the Psalms want to, to inculcate into us as the people of God through and through and through. And it's simply this. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That's the basic assertion of Psalm 2. The Lord reigns. And the blessed life, again, Psalm 1 and 2 are connected. So Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The blessed life is rooted out of and and comes out of this acknowledgement of the reign and rule of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord reigns. Okay, so what's the big deal here? Here's the hard thing for us as people who live in a broken world. So much of our world around us communicates a different message. So much of life as you experience it and as I experience it tends to communicate to us that there is no one reigning and ruling on the throne. That life more often than not seems like a, a quilt of, of disconnected coincidences that don't sometimes make a lot of sense. This is not new for us as people, but some of you I know are, are going through hard times. Some of you are struggling. Um, all of us are dealing with just the, the normal mundaneness of everyday life. And so the, the experience that we have in the world's sometimes doesn't seem to match up with this affirmation of Psalm 2. It's not new for us, though. It's been this way for God's people really from the beginning. From the beginning. 
even at the time in which this psalm is situated, uh, in, in the time of the Davidic dynasty of Israel, its height of power, there were enemies around. And they didn't always prevail over their enemies. There was the exile of the northern kingdom in 720 or so BC. There was the exile of the southern kingdom in 587 BC to the Babylonian Empire. And yet there's Psalm 2 saying that the Lord reigns. There was a glimmer of hope uh, around 165 BC when the Maccabean revolt took place over the, over the, um, the Seleucid uh, emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. And this reign of the people of God lasted again for about 100 years or so, only to be squelched by the Roman Empire. So this affirmation was constantly subject to an experience and a circumstance that pointed in a different direction. How could God reign when his people were exiled? That question, that cognitive dissonance, if you will, between the affirmation and the experience continues into the life of the one who fulfills Psalm 2, Jesus, the true Son of God, who finds himself not, not uh, leading a revolt, a successful revolt over the empire of Rome and over Caesar, who is the power broker of the day, but finds himself hanging on a Roman cross. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1 and says, this doesn't make any sense. This is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. So we, we find ourselves in good company if you can affirm in some way this fact that your experience of life as you know it and this affirmation of the rule and reign of God of Psalm 2 don't always match up. But the question really is this for us as human beings. Will you, by faith, submit to the rule and reign of God? Submit yourself to this God who reigns and rules over all creation. Come what may. Will you take refuge in this God that you proclaim by faith? That we sang about His reign, crown Him with many crowns. Alleluia. Holy, holy is the Lord God, God Almighty. The God who reigns. Or, that's the one choice. Or, will you collude with the powers of this day. Now, we could fill in the blank for what those powers might be. Money is a big one in our context. Politics, political power, material comfort is certainly a power of the day. Will you collude with the powers of the day to make the most of life that you can on your own? That's the question that, that faces us as people. Will you by faith submit to the rule and reign of God and take refuge in His rule over all of life? Even when it's foolishness and a stumbling block. Or will you turn your back on that God and collude with the powers of this day to make the most of life that you can on your own terms? That's the question. Now, the psalmist has something to say about this question, as you can imagine. Uh, he says, first of all, that resistance 
is futile. Resistance is futile. The first question, the first word of the psalm, why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's a great question that the psalmist is putting before us. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, the God who reigns, and against His anointed. This word that kind of gets mixed over through languages into the word we say Messiah. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do they do this? I don't know if you've ever been to the beach. I don't know why this sometimes I get a kick out of this on the beach, but when you're in the, the part of the beach that's getting covered with the water from the waves, and obviously the sand is kind of plot, plot malleable there so you can build sandcastles if you're a little further out. But if you're in that section where the waves are just kind of coming up and con- constantly going over the sand and you try to dig a hole, you ever tried that? And you just try to dig and you dig and you dig and the hole keeps filling in and filling in and filling in every time the water comes back over. That's the kind of picture that the psalmist is giving here to those who resist the rule and sovereign reign of God and who plot and who scheme and say, I'm going to take life in my own direction. I'm going to do things in my, in my way. You're like that person digging the hole on the sand and it's never going to get any deeper. It's folly, sheer folly. And yet we all are tempted to do this, aren't we? We all start to scheme and plot. When things aren't going our way in particular, when God hasn't met a certain end of the bargain that we thought He was going to uphold in our lives, when we suffer in a way that we didn't anticipate, we start to think, okay, well, how can I do this without you, God? How can I start making a life for myself, making my life okay, apart from you and apart from your grace? And so we start shutting God off. We still come to, to worship. We still come... Uh, we still kind of have the form of godliness in some ways. But we've lost any belief in its power. And the power that we believe in now is the power of, of, of my own good sense or of, of, uh, of good luck or of, of favorable circumstances that just kind of come my way. And we're all tempted to do this. I want to say, if not at least once a month, maybe once a day, we're tempted to turn our back and to embrace our own way, to move in this direction. Things maybe aren't moving our way. But the psalmist reminds us clearly here in these first three verses that this is a foolish turn. It's a foolish turn. It's like the chaff that blows away when we move this direction. God says, well, first we get this picture of God laughing. As we start to kind of scheme and do our own thing and make our own way, there's God sitting in His sovereign rule and reign in His throne over all of creation. And He laughs at those who would try to scorn His rule, at those who would try to to escape His gaze, His providence, His sovereign hand. It says, He sits in the heavens, laughs, and He holds them in derision. He knows that those who take this turn are like the chaff that blow away. And he says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We start to see that this picture of God ruling and reigning is brought to focus through his representative 
on earth. And we see this beginning to take shape in the Old Testament in his choosing of of David to be his king over Israel, his anointing of David. And then he makes this promise to David and says, David, uh, your descendant will be my son and I will prosper him and make sure that he has an everlasting kingdom and a reign, reigning over all the earth. God says that my reign and rule over all of creation is focusing in on this representative of my people, the king, the one who rules. He says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Israel was referred to as the son of God in Exodus chapter 4, very early on in the biblical witness. Israel is referred to as God's son. The king of Israel, by extension, who represents the nation, is called the Son of God. Just like the nation is called the Son of God. So you see in verse 7, the king is now speaking and he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This king is God's son. And this son was the Davidic king that God promised an everlasting kingdom to So this focus of God's rule and reign upon this one representative finds its way, you know where I'm going with this, down to Jesus, at whose baptism a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. At the transfiguration, the passage that we read out of Mark's gospel, again, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But what's astonishing about the rule and the reign of God is that instead of these words that we get in Psalm 2 being fulfilled in earnest at this point, where it says in verse 5 that God will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, or where it says in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This reign and rule of God purging wickedness and evil and rebellion from his good world. Instead of that picture of breaking, we get this king, this son, set on God's holy hill on outside of Zion on a cross. The reign and rule of God, though God could have, should he had wished to, obliterated the people who were the very subjects of Psalm uh, 2, 1 through 3, plotting and taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's you and that's me. God sets his son on the hill of Calvary to bear upon himself the punishment and the wrath and the fury and the rod that was due to each one of us. Because each one of us, like sheep, had gone astray and turned to his own way. God's rule and reign is not like any earthly power that we might collude with to get as far as we can on our own. God's rule and reign is defined by one word, and that word is love. And the Son whom God has begotten is the Son who bears in love 
the fury that was due to you and to me. So the psalmist goes on to say, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. He exhorts us at the beginning of the Psalms not to resist the rule of the King, but to serve. Not to run our own way, but to embrace the One who came among us to open up a new way for us to live. He commends this to us as the way of wisdom. The picture that I want to paint is that the resistance of the rule of God, which the psalm clearly paints as folly, back then, but through a Christological, through a, a Christ lens, becomes even greater folly than ever before. Revelation 5. John, not sure who is going to take the world to its climactic end. Who's going to set things right? And someone says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is worthy to open the scrolls. And so John looks up and what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as though slain. That eternal reign and rule of God was built upon the sacrificial love of God for all eternity. And to resist the rule and reign of God, to take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, is to resist the life-giving love, the lavish grace that God has for each one of us as His children. It's not to run from a tyrant. It's to run from a Savior. It's to run from somebody who's giving Himself in every way, in the deepest way that He can, to bring you in that you might become that tree planted by streams of water and not the chaff that's blowing to and fro in a mixed-up world, in a world that doesn't make sense. It's His love in the sun that He set on the holy hill that's pleading with you and with me to become the blessed, the happy man of Psalm 2 who takes refuge in Him. Takes refuge in Him. Are you taking refuge in Him? Are you depending upon this God? Are you trusting in Him even when you don't understand anything that's going on around you? Are you entrusting yourself to Him now and your future entrusting yourself to Him? That's the happy one. That's the blessed one who rests, who's at peace in the love of the Son poured out for you and for me and whose life is in His hands and nowhere else, not in your own hands, not taking counsel against, but taking refuge in. Taking refuge in. 
That's the call that Psalm 2 is calling us to. And that's the way that the psalmist will continue to proclaim for us on this journey through the Psalms, taking refuge in the one who poured his life out for you and for me. Amen.